welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. My name is Connor Heaney and I'm the collections manager for the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. And I'm joined again by trustee John Walsh. Hello, John. Hi, Connor. Uh, Wonderful to be here. And uh, as people can tell from the background, we've got something new to talk about today. And it's uh, a good friend of the foundation, uh, Mark Wolf, who's written a fabulous book, Smoke and Mirrors, Special Effects BC Before Computers. And you've seen the book as, as well, Connor, haven't you? Yeah, it's a, it's an excellent book. I mean, we'll get into to Mark's interview, but uh, I think it's a, a must read for anybody that's interested in kind of pre-digital, pre-CGI special effects, because the book covers a lot of ground. Um, I think it's, it's great for people who are involved in the film industry or who are filmmakers themselves, but also to someone like myself, who I, I'm not a filmmaker, but uh, I am fascinated by all of these techniques that uh, Mark delves into. And Mark's such an interesting man as well. He's been so helpful to us at the foundation. He really is uh, a font of knowledge. And uh, yes, yeah, the research that went into this book, uh, it's fairly incredible. Uh, you've got your copy there, John. I have, yes. So um, just reach over. It's a lovely big book. There we go. Look at it. It's... Um... It's the same as the book behind me. Of course it would be. Um, Mark's been a great friend, as you say, Connor, to us at the foundation. He was a great friend to Ray Harryhausen as well. And for those of you who've got Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, you'll see that John Carter on Mars was a project that Mark himself uh, tried to get off the ground. And Mark, of course, has worked on many feature films in special effects, in stop motion and in visual effects. And and so this book is really kind of an insider's view. So rather than it being a sort of a, a journalist who takes us by the hand through one film after another. Really, you're getting the insider's view on how these special effects were created. So if you ever wanted to know about the magic circle and how magicians do their tricks, well, this is the real magic, movie magic. And Mark gives it all away in this book for, for a small price, of course. You can order yours on Amazon. And uh, we had a, a chat with Mark earlier on. We, we did it at a different time because of the, uh, uh, the times difference in America. But so I kicked off by asking Mark, uh, What's his definition of visual effects? Hello, John and Connor. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I've certainly enjoyed your podcasts and vidcasts, and I hope this will be at least somewhat as entertaining. Special visual effects, what, what, what the heck are we talking about? Well, for the book, I 
expanded the definition in classic Hollywood terms, special effects can be an actor walks into a kitchen set and turns on the water and it flows from the faucet. Well, okay. On the other hand, you can have really spectacular moments that would simply be impossible to do uh, for a number of reasons. It might not be affordable, uh, it not, might not be safe. Uh, it could also just be something that's utterly impossible. I think of General Marion C. Cooper. He's a world traveler. And surely if anybody had known of an island somewhere where dinosaurs were still running around, it would have been him. And he would have been happy to take Fay Ray and Robert Armstrong and Bruce Cabot to that location and shoot his film. But King Kong couldn't be done that way. And Cooper turned to a gifted visionary, a man who was an artist, a technician, a cinematographer. And that man and his crew created Skull Island at RKO. Another instance would be poor Cecil B. DeMille. He had to find a way to part the Red Sea for both the silent and sound versions of the Ten Commandments. Well, short of making a deal with the Almighty, he had to rely on technicians who created the scenes at the studio for him. You can also think about a picture of like 2001 A Space Odyssey. We hadn't even been to the moon when it was made and Kubrick relied on miniatures, he relied on matte paintings, and he relied on men in suits. So special visual effects can cover everything from Laurel and Hardy to a giant ape on top of the Empire State Building. So, Mark, why did you write the book? Well, I guess you could call this a legacy project for me, for lack of a better term. When, when my generation of filmmakers is gone, we'll take with us our knowledge of the evolution of the film industry. And I, I, I personally feel a, a duty to give credit where credit is due, and uh, honor those pioneers who um, inspired us, um, people like me, uh, to follow in their footsteps. Sadly, many of them are already forgotten. And I would like to think my book is a serious effort to chronicle the pioneers and the methods that they invented. Remember, in the beginning, there were no books. There was certainly no internet, no Google, and 
they found a way to help directors tell their stories. They helped make Hollywood a global success. And I'd like to think that in the future, my book will be a ready reference for filmmakers, for researchers, and for fans. So, Mark, can I ask you what's originally got you interested in special effects? Oh, that's easy. At three years of age, Ray Harryhausen warped me forever. I vividly remember being in a theater watching an immense, ferocious, reptilian, prehistoric horror rampaging through New York City. And it knocked my socks off. And then not too long after uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, along comes the first television release of King Kong. And that really put me over the top. It fired a passion that never went away. Fortunately, Forey Ackerman came along and published Famous Monsters of Filmland and Spacemen. And God bless Forey. I, I, and I've, I said that to him. I said that to him, to his face. And that really encouraged my curiosity. Who is this guy, Ray Harryhausen? Who is this Willis O'Brien? Who, who, who is Paul Blaisdell? Who are the people who made these movies that have had such an impact on me? And bit by bit, I increased my knowledge. And the more I learned, the hungrier I was to learn more and more. So, Ray, you have a lot to answer for. And I said that to him. <laughs> Mark, you, uh, you became a producer and creator of special effects yourself. Did you, did you learn about all of this at school? Well, I'm sorry to say that, no, I didn't learn anything at school. Uh, I am from the hands-on school of learning. I was so inspired that I had what I call fire in the belly. I, I had to find a way to do my own movies. And I was very, very, very fortunate. Uh, my folks came back from a vacation trip to the Bahamas. They brought me an eight millimeter camera and it could do single frame. And it had the most amazing built-in features. I could actually do rewinds and it had a frame counter. So I could start doing split screens, uh, in-camera mats. And I made things like my own epic version of Hammer's Horror of Dracula. And I really 
experimented with makeup and uh, I had Dick Smith's makeup handbook and I had Mortician's wax and I was making strange mutant faces on myself and all that kind of experimentation. But my real thrust was stop motion and I taught myself how to build animation puppets. A lot of them were recreations of Ray Harryhausen monsters and I did my own uh, eight millimeter version of uh, King Kong with a stegosaurus and a giant gorilla and a T-Rex and all of, all of the rest. Then I had the audacity uh, to make a short film, uh, all stop motion. I sent that off in, in uh, the 1968 Kodak Teenage Awards Contest. And son of a gun, I won. One of the judges ended up being my uh, faculty advisor, consultant at university. It was Dr. Raymond Fielding. And he said to me, well, Mark, you know, the judges just couldn't believe how bloody it was. And I thought, well, they're dinosaurs. <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do? You know, I, I, I'd seen one million years BC and, and uh, you know, Kong and all the others with, with dinosaurs. So I had to have mine fight and all that. During high school, I had the distinct advantage of spending summers at uh, uh, relatives in Los Angeles who worked at CBS Studio Center, which was uh, formerly Republic. And uh, they were doing uh, Honey West and Big Valley and a uh, number, number of shows. And I had the opportunity to be introduced to Howard Lidecker. And Howard and his brother Theodore had been the miniatures masters at uh, Republic on, on films like Flying Tigers. And in those days, it was so unusual for someone my age to be so interested in this stuff. And Howard very graciously, very generously gave me a set of uh, Xeroxes about that thick and it was every shot he had ever done in his career. But it was more than that. It was all the formulas and, and uh, designs for how to make different kinds of pyrotechnic explosions near actors, how to have a spear, a flaming spear come flooding into the wall next to an actor, how to make colored smoke. How do you make green smoke? He figured it all out. And I, I was just thrilled out of my mind to have that. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that was like having an advanced degree. So hands-on experimentation was what really got me to where I knew sort of what I was doing. <laughs> 
So, Mark, can I ask, is Smoke and Mirrors the first writing you've done about special effects? Well, in truth, it was something of a trip back to the future, writing the book. I was very pleased in the early 70s to be involved with a magazine called Cine Fantastique. Starting with the second issue, I had a series of articles appear under the title of The History and Technique of Fantasy Film Animation. In fact, this is, this is an issue that had my analysis of the special visual effects in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. It was the first time someone had done a serious effort acknowledging who the people were behind the visual effects and the methods they used, rear projection, opticals, stop motion, all of the various uh, tools. So I went from it to the legendary uh, fanzine FXRH, uh, which was the brainchild of Ernest Farino and Sam Calvin. And I was very, very fortunate to be able to uh, make contributions to that publication. And uh, all these years later, it's still so highly regarded. I'm uh, very, uh, very proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of them. They, they really did a labor of love with this magazine. I was also participating with uh, this magazine, Close Up, uh, published by David Prestone. And uh, this one has an article I wrote on Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And I think uh, I think it only went for about four issues, and they're they're very highly sought after collector's items now. More recently, uh, once I retired, I was very very pleased to work for uh, my old friend Dick Clemenson, who uh, has really done the impossible. He's published this magazine for, now, I don't want to say 40 years, maybe maybe a little longer. In any case, uh, Dick has just done a, a fabulous job documenting Hammer Films. And uh, this particular issue, with my lengthy overview of When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, actually got a Rondo Award. And of course, the foundation knows about Rondo Awards, having won several. So uh, then I've also been involved with uh, this magazine, which is uh, published by uh, Hemlock Books in England. And this issue has an article on Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. There's that Retosaurus again and it came from beneath the sea. I'm also uh, very pleased to see Richard Hollis uh, uh, contributing articles to this magazine, and they, they, they do a, a, a bang-up job. They really do. So, yeah, I've been doing this kind of stuff for quite a while, and uh, 
I'm going to keep doing it. I've got a book on stop motion, which is next. And you can see books around here. Uh, some of the reference material I'm using for the, uh, the, next, the next book. And uh, what pioneers of special effects did, did you meet? Well, I've already mentioned how lucky I was to, to meet Howard Lidecker. When I was very young, I would see people's names and credits, and it never occurred to me they wouldn't write me back if I tried to contact them. So I would send letters to L.B. Abbott, care of 20th Century Fox Studios, Hollywood, California. And every now and then, one of these people would, would make enough time out of his busy schedule to write me back. And people like Howard Anderson, uh, Daryl Anderson, who, who uh, they had gotten an Emmy for the Invaders, they sent me tons of stuff from the Invaders, uh, the old TV series. And they uh, were very, very uh, sort of generous because I said to them, well, hey, you know, I, I love the Invaders and you're doing wonderful stuff, but, you know, I'm really interested in Jack the Giant Killer. So they went through their personal 35 millimeter print of the movie and made me dozens of color frame blobs that they then sent to me. And I still have many of them. I was very thrilled to meet Darlene O'Brien, uh, Obi's widow. And she and I became fast friends and she in turn introduced me to Marcel Delgado, who had fabricated the dinosaurs for Obi on Kong, Son of Kong, uh, Creation, Mighty Joe Young, Guanji, War Eagles. What an amazing person he was. He was gentle, he was quiet, he was reserved. He wasn't full of himself, even though his list of credentials included films like Wizard of Oz, Fantastic Voyage, hundreds, literally hundreds of movies. He couldn't even tell me all the films that he had worked on. And I also met uh, Wa Chang, who was absolutely wonderful to me. He literally sat me down and taught me his technique for making replacement animation heads, like he had done for the Puppetoons, like he had done for Tom Thumb, like he had done for the Pillsbury Doughboy. He taught me how to make latex skins and hosted me at his home in Carmel and showed me unbelievable artwork he was making. He was doing a series of bronzes of endangered species, and they were just fabulous. And he was doing a, a series of uh, Remington-style 
cowboy scenes. And of course, it made me think of Obi right away. And I, I mentioned to him, oh, this, this, this speaks to me of Willis O'Brien. He goes, oh, yes, yes. So uh, he was just, he was quite a mentor to me. Uh, so was Gene Warren Sr., who I spent some time in Los Angeles, and uh, he and I were bombing around in his Cadillac and having a great time. Uh, he literally gave me my first professional job, helping pour resin trees for the original Land of the Lost. And uh, that was when I met Harry Walton and uh, John Hunnick and Gene Warren Jr. and a number of other people. So uh, uh, I also I have to say that I so much enjoyed meeting Ray Harryhausen and getting to know him and discovering he had a wicked sense of humor and he delighted in teasing me and I ate it up with a spoon. We had long conversations about technique. Uh, he visited my, my, my very simple little studio several times. He was always willing to discuss with me the parameters, not, not every single tiny little teeny aspect of something. But I would say, well, Ray, I'm, I'm doing some animation with this character and it's got fur on it. And how did you control ruffling on your models? And you say, well, sometimes I used hairspray. Which, of course, also suggested that I used other things. And I, I was sort of left on my own to, to expand on what he was, he was suggesting that yes, hairspray would work, but there are other options you might discover that'll be useful for you. So uh, anyway, all of these, these people were just so fantastic to me. And I am, I, I, I must say again, with the, the book, with this, this legacy aspect that I want to acknowledge these people and what they gave to me. And hopefully I can give back somewhat through the book. So Mark, what would you say accounts for the resurgence in popularity of old school techniques and old school methods? Well, I don't know about you, but I've been in movies, in, in theaters, and watched a big screen film loaded with effects and had somebody behind me say something like, ah, oh, yeah, they do it all with computers. They're being very dismissive. And I think that audiences are frankly getting overwhelmed by it. It's, it's all CG all the time. And whether you're at a effects facility in Mumbai, India, or you're at WETA in New Zealand, or you're at ILM in the Bay Area, everything is looking similar. And I think that uh, the audiences are getting burned out on that. I think 
that's why we see directors like Christopher Nolan and Wes Anderson embracing the use of miniatures and stop motion and matte paintings to tell their stories because they are able to achieve a more individual look, something that sets their style apart. And I would like to think that more directors are going to come to this realization and that uh, over the years to come, we will see more use of miniatures and matte paintings and other, other techniques like uh, gluing rubber on people's faces again. So uh, fingers crossed. So Mark, will old films be preserved? Well, I think the old pictures are going to be preserved, certainly. At least as long as I have anything to say about it. Look, we're still watching and studying and enjoying movies made at the dawn of cinema more than 100 years ago by, by Georges Méliès. I'm sure that films of all kinds, from classics like Casablanca uh, to clunkers, that only appeal to genre buffs like uh, Attack of the Crab Monsters, they're all going to have their supporters and they're going to be enjoyed by new filmmakers, researchers, historians, and enthusiasts. Uh, you know, currently, uh, physical media is the only way to see a lot of obscure films. So that's why I, I continue to buy DVDs and Blu-rays. And I think I'm not alone. I just hope that as the uh, MGM library is acquired and updated uh, with uh, new restored uh, digitizing by Amazon, that we'll get to catch up with a lot of films from the 30s and 40s that just literally, to all intents and purposes, don't exist. We, we only know about them as uh, lists. You know, we know it was made, but none of us have ever seen them. So I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, before too much longer, we're going to be having a, a renaissance of being able to enjoy uh, the best preserved and presented versions of films that deserve to be seen. So I'm looking forward to that. And what advice would you give to somebody who wanted to create their own old school special effects? Well, some of the best advice I could give would be uh, start with a, a shameless plug for my book, uh, Smoke and Mirror Special Visual Effects BC Before Computers, because inside you'll find all kinds of photos and they show you how things were done and the text discusses how things were done and if you have what i referred to earlier as fire in the belly this will be a terrific tool for you and help you find some inspiration i'm sure 
the absolute best way to learn how to do visual effects is to do it. Get that hands-on experience. You will learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. There's nothing wrong with failure because you will advance your skill set. You will become a better sculptor. You will become a better designer. You will become a better painter. The more you do it, the more you'll, you'll find yourself, you, you, you get in touch and your, your subconscious will literally do a lot of the work for you and it will flow out of your fingers. Now, beyond that, if you're going to be a stop-motion animator, draw inspiration from Robot Chicken. You can get some action figures and uh, add wire so the joints will hold their poses and start animating them. And there are tremendous, tremendous examples of this on YouTube where people have done incredibly elaborate uh, duels and, and uh, combat with monsters and on and on. And you can do that. Whatever you want to accomplish, you can do it. But the first step is you've got to start now. You've got to say to yourself, okay, I, I don't have millions of dollars worth of lights and cameras and tracks and whatever else the professionals use. You don't need them. You need experience. You need to learn, like with stop motion, you need to learn what is slow in, slow out. You set yourself goals. You've got advantages now that people like me never had. The whole idea of you don't you don't have to wait for your film to be processed is a joy. It's a blessing. You can look at something and go, doesn't work, or it works, and you go from there. I I, I think that the more you you study things like model railroading tips and techniques to to make uh, miniature tabletops, the the more you do it the better you will get, the more you will trust your instincts. And I, I encourage you to become a problem solver because the whole point of this is to be creative, have fun, and, and do a hands-on type of filmmaking. And the more you do it, the more you'll like it, the more you'll enjoy it. I know you will. So uh, all of my best wishes to you and, and John and Connor, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this and I, I wish you well. And uh, I can't wait to see what the foundation has in store for us next. Thanks again. That was great to get that insight uh, from Mark Wolf there. And if you want to praise Mark any further, by all means, even a review online. But definitely, you know, Mark Mark's book is definitely worth looking into. And so great to hear him talking there about uh, the research and his history. 
not just with Ray, but with other people that were involved in these pioneering effects. So, so thanks for, for that. Uh, thanks to Mark Wolf for, for chatting to us. And uh, thanks again, John, for, for helping out with those questions. We'll see you again soon. But in the meantime, take care. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a Scottish registered charity, number SC001419, 2022. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter links.